Bilal Muhammad keeps rolling. We get two technical decisions in one night and a whole lot to talk about. It's Sunday, April 17th. I am E. Spencer Kite, and these are the next day takeaways. First thing I want to get into on, on this week's episode, obviously, is the main event. Bilal Muhammad goes out, maintains his unbeaten streak, gets a third straight victory over Vicente Luque, unanimous decision, 49-46 twice and 48-47. This was a textbook Bilal Muhammad type of performance. Um, comes out, grapples, shows improved striking, really does a terrific job of controlling Vicente Luque with his movement, with his the timing of his, his offensive strikes, the timing of his takedowns. Um, the real big takeaway for me from a, from a technical standpoint with Bilal is how impressive those open space takedowns were. We don't see it a lot in MMA these days. We see a lot of takedowns along the fence. We see a lot of kind of body locks into trips and things of that nature or dumping the legs out from underneath somebody. But each time he put Luque on the ground on Saturday, it was a well-timed level change in space, leaving him in the center of the cage and giving him that opportunity to grind out some control time on top because Luque has to work that much harder to get him off of him. He has to work to get the the knee shield across and, and work to create space to get himself up because he can't just back up into the fence and then use the fence to stand back to his feet. It was well executed. It was well timed. Each time from Bilal Muhammad, he navigated some some dicey moments in there. There were a couple moments where Vicente Luque looked like he had him hurt. But Bilal did a really great job of not panic wrestling and not looking to engage in kind of a get one back exchange. Instead, he kept circling. He threw sporadic shots to keep Luque from getting inside. And then when the opportunity presented itself, shoots for the double, puts him on the ground, gets some rest time, gets some control time on top to kind of clear the cobwebs. And it was not smooth sailing from there, but but clear from there with with Muhammad winning the fourth and fifth rounds on my card, at least, and, and two of the three judges' scorecards. The other piece of this, to me, before we get to what I think is next, as I teased in the, in the recap piece on Saturday night, is that Bilal gets in the post-fight and, and talks about kind of proving the haters wrong. And I spoke to him this week, and, and he talked a lot about wanting to prove the doubters wrong and prove the haters wrong. And to me, this, like, I understand it, but it's one of those narratives that we continue to push in this sport that isn't necessarily true. And I think it comes from paying way too much attention to people that don't matter and opinions and voices that don't matter. And I don't say that in a self-aggrandizing way where I, I think suddenly my opinion matters more than, than many, many others. But in reality, my opinion matters more than many, many others. My opinion matters than the eggs on Twitter. My opinion matters more than Brandon 187 UFC. And I think we get a lot of conversation and a lot of discussion about proving the haters wrong and and proving all my doubters wrong. Anybody that I know that understands this sport and understands what Bilal brings to the cage what Luque brought to the cage, how this fight could potentially play out stylistically and tactically. 
understood that there was a very good chance that Bilal Muhammad has a performance similar to what he did on Saturday. Now, I don't know how many people necessarily would have expected the improved striking that we saw. And he did a great job with body kicks. He did a great job with his hands as well. But understood going in that there was a path to victory for Bilal Muhammad using his wrestling, using his grappling, as we talked about on the Severe MMA podcast preview show on Thursday, taking away those posts, putting Luke down in the center of the cage, and just kind of forcing him to be defensive instead of giving him opportunities to create space and attack. And that's exactly what we saw on Saturday. And so while I understand there are people who were saying, you know, the things that Luke mentioned in the broadcast mentioned about taking away from his win over Damian Maya or taking away from his victory over Stephen Wonderboy Thompson. To me, most of those voices do not matter. They are not credible voices. They are not meaningful voices. And as a media, as fans of this sport, it's time we stop giving those voices and those people attention and acting as if their thoughts and opinions matter because they're clearly not educated. They're clearly not unbiased and understanding of these situations. This shouldn't have been a moment of saying, oh, proven all my doubters wrong. If Bilal Muhammad still has actual legitimate doubters after going unbeaten in eight straight fights in the UFC welterweight division, not a single one of those people is someone you need to listen to. And I think more of us need to start understanding that and appreciating that going forward and and we'll be in a better place, both in terms of social media, in terms of the way we kind of look at this sport and talk about this sport, and just in life in general. Which brings me to the last piece of this, which is who I think is next for Bilal. And he's not going to like this. Fans of his are not going to like this. His team is not going to like this. When I spoke to him on on Tuesday ahead of this fight, he said, look, I understand where I'm at. I look at it as I'm going to have to go number five this weekend, Vicente Luque, and then number four, and then number three, and then number two, and then number one before I get my championship opportunity. And while I think essentially he's correct, I don't think timing-wise and matchup-wise it's going to work out that way for him. Because right now, everybody else that's in front of him kind of has something on the go. So Leon Edwards is going to fight Kamaru Usman whenever the champ is ready to return. Colby Covington is maybe, probably, I think so, going to fight Hamzat Chemaev because that feels like the right next test for the undefeated Bors going forward to see if he really is set to challenge for a title. Gilbert Burns is the only other guy in that mix. He's coming off a loss last weekend to Chemaev, but he's been talked about as, as having a marquee opportunity on the docket and I don't think that that is Bilal Muhammad and additionally I don't want to see Gilbert Burns hustled back out there into a fight that has championship significance at this moment coming off that loss and having just lost to Kamaru Usman last year just a year ago now and so I think Bilal is probably going to be the guy that gets offered Sean Brady and I know that's not the fight that Bilal would like. It means he's fighting backwards in the division. I know it's not the fight that a lot of fans probably want to see if you're fans of Bilal Muhammad and seeing him move forward. It's not even a fight that I necessarily like because I don't want to see one of these guys forced to take a step back. I'm I'm always in favor 
of moving people forward on parallel tracks until it gets to a point where somebody has to lose. And I don't think a fight between Bilal Muhammad and Sean Brady at this point is going to be a fight that puts the winner in a championship opportunity. Not when you have Hamzat Chemaev sitting there, hanging out there. Not when we don't know how Kamara Usman and Leon Edwards part two is going to play out. But I also think it's the only real fight that makes sense for each guy at this point in time. Brady can probably, there's some other options that are probably available to him in there. He could, for instance, fight Luke. But I would really hope that the UFC gets away from doing the thing where the guy that just lost the important fight fights the next guy on the come up. Because that's how we end up with these divisions that feel stale and the same names moving forward that have already fought the champion or already been knocked off before they got there. And so I think it's going to be Muhammad and Brady. And I know it's not necessarily the fight that Bilal will want, but I think it's a fight that he can win and make another statement in, in stopping the undefeated up-and-comer from Philadelphia. If he goes out and has another dominant performance, like he did on Saturday, it just further strengthens his case. And I know he shouldn't have to. I'm the first to argue he shouldn't have to keep strengthening his case and keep winning fights because winning or being unbeaten in eight straight fights and earning seven consecutive victories in, in fights that didn't end in eye pokes is an accomplishment that should get you further up the ladder than he is right now. But this is the landscape of the UFC at this moment. This is the situation Bilal Muhammad finds himself in and that might be the best option for him at this time. Picking up with the co-main event and I'm going to rope in the Martin Budai, Chris Barnett fight here as well because the co-main event Kyo Bohelio gets a technical decision victory over Gadzi Omar Gadziev, stopped in the third round after a knee to the head of a downed opponent, similar to the Piotr Jan Aljamain Sterling situation, where we get referee Dan Mergliata, who is also the referee in the Budai Barnett fight, and, and he made a joke about it in the cage when it happened. He takes the point away. And then once it's determined that Omar Gadziev can't continue, he says, we're going to the scorecards, incidental blow, you know, unintentional blow. And so we get the technical decision. And a lot of people on Saturday night kind of wondered, well, how is this different than Piotr Jan Aljamain Sterling? How is this different than the Martin Budai Chris Barnett fight where it was clearly an illegal blow, but we went to the scorecards and and so to me this feels like a good opportunity to kind of pull away from the excitement of the moment and the fervor of the moment and just talk about first the actual rules and the actual way these things break out or at least how I interpret them how I understand them so the decision in the Budai Barnett fight to go to the scorecards is procedurally the correct one Murgliata ruled that an inadvertent blow. There was no point taken. And so because we are in the third round, you score that third round and you go to the scorecard. You go to the scorecards, you score the third round. That's how we get the 30-27 for Martin Budai, who gets a win in his debut. Same thing kind of in the, in the co-main event where we're in the third round. And so that's the reason to go to the scorecards. The piece that's different to me, and I said this on Saturday night, is that in taking the point, it acknowledges that it's an illegal blow. And so, while I guess you can still argue that it's unintentional, 
I feel like the fact that he takes the point shows that there's intent. Like the penalty is the intent part. And I know a lot of people, rightfully so, are saying every strike in MMA is intentional. And and Nick Baldwin kind of brought up the like, haven't we seen points taken for, you know, low blows and eye pokes and things like that nature. And that's where the subjective piece of this comes in for the official. I think with low blows and eye pokes and and penalties being taken there, it's rarely for the first one, though it should probably be. And it's more of a cumulative thing where you're showing a lack of control of your weapons. You're showing a lack of control of what you're doing. And so it's more of a cumulative penalty. Whereas this to me was was clearly a strike that Kyle Bohailio was throwing intentionally. He wanted to knee Gadziel Morgadziev in the head as he did. Now he believed that his hands were coming up or his hands weren't on the mat or whatever the case may be. But much like Piotr Jan, he throws a stupid shot that he shouldn't throw and he gets penalized for it and his opponent can't continue. Which to me is where this should have been a disqualification loss for Kyle Bohailio because that penalty was taken. Where with the Martin Budai fight, it's deemed an inadvertent blow. It's deemed an unintentional foul because of how it's being thrown, right? It's an elbow in a series of shots as Chris Barnett is covering up and moving along the fence. And if you want to get super technical, the replay showed it touched the ear, which is kind of what the referees tell you in the back is make sure you're touching the ear when you're going in that region. Um, EKC Layden shouted out on, on Twitter as I brought that up that when he had his fight a couple weeks ago and shout to Casey for getting the victory, that he was told the Mohawk region. So basically, shave a Mohawk on your head, and as long as it's not on the hair part of that Mohawk, you're good to go. And so to me, they're two different situations. It does bring up the subjectiveness of all of this and, and how we need a better kind of clear definition of all of these things and a clearer step-by-step procedural where it isn't necessarily left in the hands of the official to make the decision whether it was intentional or unintentional. You can make the case that you just declared a no contest and say nobody wins in this situation, which feels like a penalty to Kyle Bohailio or Martin Budai in that situation because they were clearly ahead. But they're also the individuals that threw the blow that ended the fight and rendered their opponent unable to continue due to an inadvertent illegal shot. And so the no contest kind of feels like probably the easiest, the safest way to go going forward with these. Hopefully, after getting two of these decisions in the same night, we see something from the Nevada State Athletic Commission kind of clarifying their position. We're talking about how these were determined and how we're going to move forward. And before I get off it, I have to just say, and I said it Saturday night when everybody started going crazy, right? Because it became the theme of the night the rest of the way through after the Martin Budai fight that people are going to get up, fighters are going to get up 2-0 and then know that they can throw an illegal shot as long as it doesn't look intentional in order to avoid fighting the rest of the fight, go to the scorecards and, and get the decision win if they're already up. And to me, it's the most ridiculous statement that I've heard in a long time from credible people, from smart people who sure as shit know better. 
because I can't think of one instance where I've seen a fighter up 2-0 on the scorecards go into the third round and intentionally throw an illegal strike just to get out of there, just in hopes of, of avoiding the next five minutes and getting a victory that way. Um, it doesn't work in main event fights. You have to get into the fourth round. You have to be beyond the third round. So we're even further along before we're making these weird decisions that, that never seem to happen. But this seems to be the way that MMA people tend to react at times when stuff like this happens. We just, it becomes, you know, we take it to the absurd level. We take it to the extreme level. And I think also part of it on Saturday night, and people are going to get upset that I say this, but it's because it's Chris Barnett and it's a guy that everybody likes and they don't want to see him go out like that because there isn't that same energy when an illegal shot or a borderline illegal shot is thrown against 99% of people. We see errant shots that maybe clip the back of the head in finishing sequences all the time. And because the fight isn't stopped from a illegal shot or technical decision kind of standpoint, nobody says boo. Nobody spends time jumping on Twitter and saying, oh, well, they can just throw illegal blows now, I guess. But when it's Chris Barnett, a guy that everybody rightfully loves, a guy that's been around forever, that dances on his way to the cage, that doesn't look like he should be competitive and fighting at this level, but here he is at 36... Everybody wants to make this a bigger deal than it needs to be. We are not going to see fighters in the UFC going out in the third round up 2-0 that decide, well, I'm going to go and try to see if I can't sneak in a, a really hard low blow that renders this man or woman incapable of continuing so that I can just get out of here and, and get the victory and not have to take any more damage. It's not going to happen. If it does... I'll be on here saying I was wrong. I will, you know, I, I will never question these things again and I will never react to people's overreactions on Twitter. But Saturday night was a whole lot of overreacting about a thing that we're just not going to see. And it continued throughout the night. And it then gained more steam in the co-main event when we got a second straight or a second technical decision in the same card. It's just not going to happen, guys. I understand that people are upset that their boy Chris Barnett caught a loss from a borderline illegal blow in a fight that he was getting thoroughly dominated. That's the other part of this. Like, really, all kinds of people went in on Aljamain Sterling, calling him an actor, playing it up, get out there and continue, yada, whatever. But when it's Chris Barnett and he can take the way out of, of getting the DQ win... Well, then, then we have to go for the DQ win and it's cool and it's understandable. doesn't matter that for 11 and a half minutes, he was getting lamped by Martin Budai. Or that the fight could have been stopped earlier in the third round when Budai dropped him with a knee to the midsection after Chris Barnett told his corner that he had a broken rib. Could have been stopped in between rounds when Chris Barnett told his corner that he had a broken rib. But with, when it's Chris Barnett, we're cool with taking the DQ because the guy hit you with the illegal blow. But when it's Aljamain Sterling, that's not the way this should go because we like Piotr Jan more. And we don't like the way Aljamain Sterling reacted to it. I know it's asking a lot to ask for consistency from people in MMA when it comes to how we react to and interpret these situations. But kind of like the thing I said about Bilal Muhammad and these supposed haters, if we don't get to this place, then we're going to continue to have this 
this hypocrisy, this incongruousness of the way we talk about these athletes in these situations that are very, very similar. And so we're not going to see people looking for ways out in fights that they're winning by throwing illegal blows or borderline illegal blows. It's just not going to happen. And if you want your guy to get the decision, the disqualification win because you like him, I want you to maintain that same energy and maintain that same position when it happens in the reverse, when it's your guy that throws the borderline illegal blow and the other guy's going to get the disqualification win. And one last thing on the co-main event before we get out of here and keep moving down the card is it really sucks because Kyle Bahio had a really great performance. This was a, a guy that admittedly I wasn't sure of coming into this fight. I thought he looked good against Aaron Jeffrey on the Contender Series. He obviously looked great in his second fight that got him the contract, but I thought that was against an overmatched opponent. But he showed on Saturday night that there is skill here. There is upside here. This is a guy to keep an eye on. The control on the ground was terrific. The striking in the fits and starts that we saw it looked very, very good. He fits this division well from a size standpoint, from an athleticism standpoint. And it's just unfortunate that the way this fight ended takes away from the conversation we should be having about this promising Brazilian newcomer. Next up, we get the welterweight belt between Andre Fialiu and Miguel Baeza. Baeza looks good out of the gate. Hurts Fialu a little bit, but then continues to stand and gets absolutely clobbered by a bunch of uppercuts. First, he gets his nose broken, and that clearly bothered him. He was touching it and wiping at it right away. Then Fialu gets the clinch and starts busting him up with some uppercuts. Gets the finish in the first round. This is a great performance from a guy that looked good in his debut on short notice in January. Now comes out and beats an up-and-coming talent in Baeza to get his first victory. That was the kind of effort that we saw from Fialu last year when he earned four straight wins, including a, four straight stoppage wins, I should say, including a couple over former UFC fighters, Stefan Sekulic and James Vick. He is a big, strong dude in this division, and he trains with a great crew down at Sanford. He's someone that I said going in, and I think a lot of people said going in, is worth keeping an eye on because he's, already kind of established himself as being in that middle of the pack in that division when he go out and, and have a good fight as he did against Michelle Pajera in his debut. The bigger takeaway here for me is Baeza, who starts his career with 10 straight victories, including three straight finishes in the UFC, but has just run into a wall here in his last three fights. Decision loss to Santiago Ponzinibbio, and now back-to-back -back stoppage losses to Chaos Williams and Fialu on Saturday night. He's a guy to me that has yet to figure out how to play to his strengths best. And he hasn't figured out the defensive portion of things. He's great on offense. He's great in terms of throwing his shots. He's got power. He's fluid. He moves well. He's big and tall for the division. Good job of mixing up his, his kicks and his strikes to different levels. But the defensive standpoint, the defensive perspective of things isn't quite there yet. His chin's usually a little bit high. He kind of wades in and, and keeps his hands back, doesn't, doesn't pull his hands back quick enough, doesn't get out of his strikes quick enough. And for a guy that has been touched up in a couple of his fights now and has been hurt in a couple of his fights, he needs to be a little bit more aware that I can't be in here 
trading with a guy like Fialu, who has clear power. I thought going in, we would see some more wrestling from him. He is a legitimate Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt. I thought we would maybe see him take it to the ground, but that piece isn't there. And so now Miguel Baeza has a lot of soul searching to do. It's three straight losses. I don't think he gets let go. I'm never going to advocate for the UFC releasing people. But I think he gets a significant step back and a very serious, okay, prove something to me fight next. Whereas Andre Fialu goes forward, stays in that kind of pack that he's in, but gets a fight against somebody in that same Michel Pajera range as he had in his debut now that he's absolutely proven that he deserves to be included in that kind of group. Women's bantamweight action, Myra Bueno Silva goes out and gets a unanimous decision win over Wu Yanan, um, helping me out so I don't have to listen to Sean Sheehan talk about Wu's terrific, terrific striking on Thursday when we run this back and, and talk about the next event. This was a great showing for Bueno Silva, in my opinion. It was also a very good case study, as I said on Saturday, in understanding impact when it comes to strikes because Wu Yanan is out there throwing a whole lot. And they said at one point in the broadcast, she's closing in on 200 strikes attempted. That number means absolutely nothing, both in terms of cumulative strikes over the course of a fight do not matter because each fight has to be looked at as three individual five-minute segments. And what you throw doesn't matter. It's what you land and how effectively you land those things. And throughout that fight, Bueno Silva was landing the more significant, more immediately impactful shots. And we saw that. You can see that just watching the fight. She lands one of those overhand rights, one of those fastballs, and it snaps Wu's head back. And you see the impact of it. And so in order to combat that, Wu has to land four, five, six of the shots that she's been landing throughout the fight. Because the impact just isn't there. The immediate damage isn't there. And I know people are going to want to argue this, but go check out the scoring criteria. It specifies immediate damage over cumulative damage. It's why a knockdown at the end of the round or a near finish at the end of a round can swing a fight that was entirely one-sided the other way, can swing a round, sorry, that was entirely one-sided the other way in the favor of the person that scores the knockdown because it is the most immediately damaging, immediately impactful effort and, and strike of that round. And that rates higher than anything else. I like Bueno Silva moving up to bantamweight. I said going in that I thought maybe the road to contention was a little bit easier for her. I want to see the next fight. She's in a position now where I wouldn't be opposed to seeing her fight somebody kind of in the lower third of the top 15. I think it's going to take a couple of fights for her to really adjust to this weight class and really settle in. She looked a little slowed down and, and fatigued in the third round. And I think the more she gets used to competing at this size and at this weight, she'll really settle in and can potentially be somebody that kind of hangs out and lives in that lower third and maybe even climbs up into that middle third where people like Penny Kianzad, who we'll talk about in a little bit here, exist right now because there is room for athletes to grow and climb the ranks at bantamweight but this was a good win coming off two fights last year where she didn't get her hand raised it gives her a reset it gets her moving forward and she's certainly somebody to continue keeping an eye on going forward in this division featherweight my guy pat sabatini collects his fourth straight victory 
Unanimous decision win over TJ Laramie, 30-26 across the board. The 10-8 is the second round where Sabatini controls it. Threw out on the ground, outlands TJ Laramie by greater than 50 cumulative shots over the course of that five minutes. This was just a, a workmanlike effort, and this was an example of where facing really good competition on the regional circuit, being a little bit older, and being fully aware of who you are as a fighter can pay massive dividends, especially at this level. Sabatini's 31 years old. He was a two-time champion in CFFC, which is one of the better regional promotions in the United States and, and truthfully across the board in terms of mixed martial arts because there are no easy fights there regardless of what records say. And he understands that his best path to victory every time out is to be a wrestler, is to be a grappler, has tremendous grappling, has a great ability to transition and maintain position and scramble well and all of those things. And we saw that on Saturday night as he remained a step ahead of TJ Laramie, who acquitted himself nicely, who gave a very good showing for himself in his first fight in well over a year after getting submitted in 52 seconds in his debut. But this was the difference in levels, the difference in experience, the difference in physical understanding of your body between the 31-year-old Sabatini and the much younger TJ Laramie. Sabatini's at a at a point now where, you know, he, he didn't call anybody out. And, and if you've ever talked to him, if you've ever seen him, you know he's not going to do it. He's a guy that's just going to say exactly what he said. Look, I'm, I'll take whoever they give me. I want to fight everybody. But he's at a point where he's closing in on facing somebody in that lower third of the division. And for me, he becomes a guy that you just put in there because he is 31 years old. 31 isn't necessarily old, but when you look at that division... There are so many young up-and-coming talents that are in their mid to late 20s that are starting to work forward that you can't just slow play Pat Sabatini. This fight was supposed to be against Gavin Tucker, which even that felt like too small of a step forward after three wins in his rookie season because we kind of understand where Gavin Tucker's ceiling is now after a handful of fights in the UFC. So for me, I would love to see Sabatini get the chance to face someone like Mavsari Vloyev. It's probably too far to chase him up the line and get him in there with an Edson Barbosa or maybe even a Giga Chikadze. I saw a few people shout out Ryan Hall, but I don't want to see that fight. I, I mean, from a grappling perspective and, and loving the exchanges that would happen on the ground, I absolutely want to see that fight because it would be fun as hell to see just how that plays out in terms of the two very different grappling dynamics but from a competitive standpoint and where they're at in the division and careers and all of those things it's not a fight that interests me because of where ryan hall is at right now coming off a win over Derek minner but kind of again topping out and being a little older and we know where he is and and it just isn't a fight that carries a guy like sabatini that's on a four fight winning streak here in the ufc and six straight overall into a position where he really takes that good step forward and we really figure out if he is a top 15 guy or not. And so for me, I want it to be somebody in the lower third of that division, in the lower third of those rankings. I hope he gets that opportunity. He's a guy that likes to stay active. Fought three times last year, surely wants to fight three more times this year, and to me is establishing himself as a dark horse in the 145-pound weight class. Jumping back in, I want to acknowledge I said dark horse weird there. I said dark horse. 
Sorry, sometimes it happens. And also apologies for the leaf blower outside. It seems that my neighbors only ever want to do yard work and housework outside of their home whenever I plug in my microphone to record a podcast. So sorry about the the added noise. I will try to filter it out as I go through it and, and learn a little bit about using different audio equipment here as we're trying to do on this episode of the Next Day Takeaways. Last fight on the main card, Munir Lazez goes out and has a great performance against, against Ange Losa. Unanimous decision, 30-27 across the board. And then shout out Daniel Kinahan. And so that's where we got to go with this. Look, anytime you you stand in the octagon and thank and praise a guy that, you know, was, was just sanctioned by a whole lot of countries and there is a $5 million bounty for his uh, arrest, it just, it just can't happen, man. And shout out to Al Dawson for asking questions about it in the post-fight media scrum with Munir Lazez, who started by saying, look, he's a guy that's helped me, then backtracked it, then stepped it back to, I don't know anything about that stuff outside of the cage, then moved it to, well, I got to look at that stuff and I'll get back to you about it. Like, it's just one of those things, man. Like, this should have been a moment where we're talking about a really good performance for you, where you go out and show that striking that you have and you show the, you know, entertaining skills that you bring to the table as kind of an established middle-of-the-pack welterweight that can get some fights and get some some entertaining opportunities in the octagon. But then you go and do that, and it's just it just takes away from everything. Obviously, understandably, rightfully. Because you're shouting out the leader of a notorious drug cartel who was just sanctioned. Like we said, this isn't like, you know, it's... <sighs> MMA does this to you sometimes. And, and unfortunately, and I'm not going to say it does this to you a lot of times because I think people conflate kind of how bad some of the stupidity of MMA is with this legitimately terrible thing or, you know, the, the connections between Hamzat Chimaev and Ramzan Kadarov as, as Karim Zidane and Kevin Draper wrote about in the New York Times today and, and Karim has talked about throughout his journalistic career. And if you're not following Karim, go and follow Karim. He is fabulous at what he does. And, and we are blessed to have that man doing what he does in this space. But this is the shit that we can't have. And this is shit that the UFC needs to address. This is stuff that needs needs to be removed. Much like Munir Lizez, you know, making the... But then Elysio Zaleski got his period. Like, it's just dumb shit that makes... That takes away from a great performance. It's unnecessary, unneeded horseshit that takes away from a great performance. So here you are, you haven't fought since you lost last January, and you come out and you get a good effort, you get a good win, and you just flush it all down the toilet in five minutes on the microphone because you call a guy a pussy and you say he got his period, and then you shout out a crime ward. Great job, Munir Lizez. Just really terrific work. If you never fight in the UFC again, I wouldn't be upset. Probably sounds harsh, but like, if that's who you are, if this is this is what we get from you, I don't care if I see it again. Run through the prelims here real quick. Devin Clark gets third round stoppage win over Thick Willie Knight in a heavyweight fight. The takeaway for me is that William Knight is getting bad advice. William Knight is getting bad career decision advice. He looked terrible in a short notice fight against Max Grishin earlier this year where he blew past the light heavyweight limit, came in, I think, at 118, 
or sorry, 218, 118 would have been really weird. Um, came in at 218. This fight gets booked at heavyweight. Everybody thinking, ah, oh, well, he'll probably come in at 225. He comes in at 250 plus and just looks like a dude that, you know, likes being muscled, likes being big and thick and likes being big and strong. And I get it, but he doesn't throw enough punches. He doesn't have enough energy. He doesn't have enough gas tank to compete with these guys when he's fighting at this ballooned up weight. And so now after back-to-back fights on relatively short notice at weights that he shouldn't be fighting at, he's on a two-fight losing streak and and could very well be released. Again, I never want to advocate for these things, but somebody needs to sit this guy down and be like, look, you need to take six months here and get this shit figured out. Get your weight in check. Get to a point where you are able to make 205 regularly without issue because that's the best weight class for you. That's where you want to be, so let's keep you there. And if that means not fighting for the next six or eight months because you can't be walking around at 250, then let's figure this piece out. If it means dialing back some of the power lifting and the moving heavy weights that you're doing, then let's dial that back because are you a bodybuilder? Are you a power lifter? Or are you a UFC fighter? Because if you're a UFC fighter, you can't be walking around at this weight and just take fights at heavyweight because, hey, it's time to take a fight and let's just take a fight. Give yourself the best opportunity to win. William Knight hasn't done that in his last two outings. And I hope somebody gets in his ear and convinces him to start doing that again. Because we saw little flashes when he was at light heavyweight. We saw little flashes in his two opportunities on the Contender Series. And those flashes have absolutely gone away in these last two fights. And he needs to get back to it. Penny Kianzad gets a win over Lena Landsberg, the returning Lena Landsberg, answering Sean Sheehan's question of who initiates the clinch whenever Lena Landsberg fights. It is Lena. She pushes into the clinch all the time. Great performance from Kianzad, who I think has now in the last couple of years established herself as a permanent fixer in the top 15 at bantamweight, but one of those fighters in that lower third, maybe lower half, mentioned Myra Buena Silva earlier. That could be a really great matchup in terms of figuring out where Myra Buena Silva fits in the division. Give her Kianzad, who lost two fights back to Raquel Pennington and sort of the find out where her ceiling sits fight for her. Two veterans, both like to stand and trade, book that fight and we're good. Drakkar Close comes out, gets a win in his return to the cage after two years away, absolutely blows out Brandon Jenkins as expected. Drakkar Close is a dude that I said it throughout the week leading into this. People just don't remember how good he is. He's 12-2-1 now for his career. His last fight before this was that slobber knocker with Benil Dariush where he's nearly got Benil finished and then he eats one and gets finished himself. He's another one of these guys that just, we we talk about this division and how deep and talented and, and competitive it is. And Drakkar fits in there. They are, he and his wife, Courtney Casey, are back with the MMA lab after a couple of years of sort of bouncing around and, and dealing with some drama and some, you know, gym stuff out there in Arizona. They're back where they want to be. They're back with a great team. And this is Drakkar getting back to a great performance. He's absolutely somebody that can be in there with some of these emerging fighters on the cusp of breaking into the top 15. He called out Mark Madsen, which, hey, it, it's a step up and it's a step forward for Mark Madsen. I would absolutely welcome seeing that fight because Drakkar's got a good wrestling background of his own and he clearly hits like a ton of bricks. And so it might be the right decision to make. Always cool when guys have a name in mind and go out 
and ask for what they want after a great victory like that. Wouldn't be surprised to see Drakkar get that opportunity. It would also be an Arizona battle, right? He said in his media afterwards that it's not so much about Mark, it's more about his coaches. And so we may end up seeing that one. And hey, if they can do it in Arizona, even better. Hafa Garcia gets a second round submission win over Jesse Ronson, a fight where we also saw an illegal blow, right? Hafa Garcia knees Jesse Ronson. Jesse Ronson opts to continue, comes out afterwards and says, as you would expect, I'm really not feeling great after that knee. Wasn't feeling good going in. Could have taken the coward's way out, but I want to fight. That's not how I want to blah, 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 blah. Takeaway for me here before the knee, we saw some, some adaptation and some advancement from Hafa Garcia who mixed in some wrestling and, and kept Jesse Ronson guessing, which we haven't seen from him in the past. The other thing for me is that we need to just have these commentators call the fights, man. Like this fight was going into the late stages of the second round and they were talking about something other than the action that was transpiring in the cage and nobody was was talking about Garcia taking Ronson's back and, and sinking in the choke. Um, I don't know if it's just the combination of Daniel Cormier and Dominic Cruz that doesn't work that well. I don't know if it's just DC in general, who I think is super knowledgeable and has moments where he's terrific at the job, but there are also moments where it just becomes so tangential and the action in the cage becomes so secondary that I hit mute, that I just don't listen, that I don't want to listen, that I want to just jump on Twitter and complain about these dudes left, right, and center. And so I, I hope that somebody gets in their ear. I hope somebody from the production side of things says, look, we need to we need to keep focused as much as we can because we almost didn't call the finish. We didn't call the transition to the back. We didn't call getting the, the arm under the neck. We were setting up to talk about going into the third round and there's this finish. And so it's a great win for Hoffa Garcia who's now on two straight wins and a good finish over Jesse Ronson. He's working his way up the ladder. There are lots of lightweights for him to fight. I think it's too much to, to hustle him into that real deep middle pack, um, given that his wins are Natan Levy and now Jesse Ronson, guys that have a combined zero victories in the octagon. But give him that little step up. Give him somebody that's got a couple of wins. Maybe even give him the guy that fought earlier in the night, Jordan Levitt, getting a win over Trey Ogden. That would make a lot of sense to me. Skipping the Budai-Chris Barnett fight because we already talked about it for the most part. Budai looked good. A guy to keep an eye on, developing, emerging, graping man for the division. Pay attention going forward, remember the name at least. Jordan Levitt gets a split decision win over Trey Ogden. Not a lot to this fight. Levitt is a guy that exclusively almost likes to grapple. Um, Going to be remembered for, you know, his arse coming out in the first round and then doing the splits and his little butt shake, his little twerk at the end when he gets the victory. He's a guy that he's going to need to continue to build those striking skills, man, and, and kind of very, very direct-to-DVD version of what I said with Mackenzie Dern last week, where unless he figures out better entries and better ways to set up his takedowns and to get into his bag, he's going to be in, he's going to be limited. There, there's an absolute ceiling on him because as great as he is on the ground, it takes you engaging with him for him to do the things that he wants to do. And we saw at one point in the fight in the first round, he tried to get Trey Ogden to the ground. Ogden ends up on top. He hits a beautiful, Levitt hits a beautiful sweep, but Ogden just understands to bail out. He understands to get himself out of there and not grapple with this dude. Uh, 
And so unless Jordan Levitt can can sort that piece out, he's going to have a tough time and he's he's going to need to show some real development going forward before he starts making some actual waves in the 155-pound weight class. Second fight of the night, Sam Hughes gets a much-needed majority decision win over Estela Nunez. Shouldn't have been a majority decision. Adelaide Bird, I don't know how you scored the second round for Estela Nunez. Sam Sam Hughes dominated the second half of that round clearly, and there wasn't enough in the first half to give it to Nunez. Should have just been a straight-up unanimous decision. But either way, very happy for Sam Hughes, who is somebody that got thrown into the fire on a short-notice fight against Tisha Torres, so you throw that one out. Next two fights are against quality prospects in Loma Luke Moonmi and Luana Pinheiro. She loses both of those, not showing as much activity, kind of looking like she did in the first round of this fight. The difference being, and the the important takeaway here, and, and the important thing to remember going forward, is that this was her first camp at Fortis MMA. She's moved to Dallas. She's reset from some challenging issues in her life to go down to Dallas to work with Safe Saud and the crew there at Fortis. And you saw Safe in this in between the first and second round just get into her the way that he does, the way that he is capable of and does with all of his athletes. Telling it to her straight, this is what I need. I need you to go. I need you to work behind this. This is how it's going to happen. And Hughes showed that she was super coachable by going out and executing exactly what she was told to shift this in her favor and collect her first UFC win. She's somebody that is clearly athletic she's certainly tough she's now clearly coachable and so look I don't think she becomes a contender I don't think at 29 she suddenly starts figuring all of these things out and takes giant leaps and bound steps into the top 15 into division that's super deep and super competitive but I do think it's much better than she's shown thus far I do think that Saturday night is the start of seeing much better out of Sam Hughes as she gets comfortable, as she gets a little more confident, as she spends a little more time working with Safe and the crew down there. This is a very good win to get her moving in the right direction. I hope it's not too much of a step up the next time out because she needs to just continue to be brought along slowly. She's had, I think now this was her 10th fight in her career. And so it's a good win, a little step up. Let's see what happens after that. Opening fight of the night, Alatang Haley stops Kevin Kroom in 47 seconds, hits him with a right hand upside the head, catches him behind the temple, knocks off the equilibrium, and just comes out and gets gets sort of the, the follow-up finish the rest of the way. The takeaway for me is that we continue to kind of sleep on guys like Alatang Haley, who, because they continue to fight in this position, and because they continue to fight guys that are a little bit lesser known, we don't give their results and their development and what they've shown us as much credit and as much credence as it probably deserves. You pull up his Wikipedia and you see the record is 15, 8, and 2, which is kind of a weird record and an all-over-the-place record. But if you scroll a little further and you look a little more into it, he was 4-6 and six after his first 10 fights, which means it's been really good since then. And he's now... 4-1-1 in the UFC, or 3-1-1, sorry, my apologies. 3-1-1 in the UFC. Draw against Gustavo Lopez, where he was, you know, had a point deduction for grabbing the fence a whole bunch of times. So that could have been a victory as well, which would have been 4-1-1, where he's lost to Casey Kinney, who's a tough guy just that lives on the fringes of the top 15. And so to have a 30-year-old that's getting comfortable, 
that has a couple good wins, that clearly has power, that has a great frame for this division and great size for this division, even though he's continuing to fight early in these prelims, we need to start paying attention to some of these guys. It's not that they're going to be contenders. It's not that they're going to get to that point where they are great big names fighting great big fights. But all the time that we talk about not knowing these people, like we should know who Alatang Haley is by now, just by nature of the fact that he's been in the UFC for five fights and he's putting on performances like this. So I hope he gets a good step up in competition next time out. Bantamweight, as you know, my favorite division, the most competitive division there is. And he should be in another good, entertaining fight somewhere in the second half of this of this year. And I hope people pay attention to it more closely after a performance like that. Quick look ahead to next week's fight card back at the Apex on my anniversary, April 23rd. Headlined by strawweights Amanda Limos and Jessica Andrade. Absolutely phenomenal fight every time Brennan Fitzgerald mentioned it. During the broadcast on Saturday, I smiled. I spoke with both of these ladies beforehand for stories that are coming up on UFC.com early in the coming week. Both are really excited about this. I think this is a terrific fight. This is a really intriguing fight to me. Former champ coming back, emerging talented Lamosh moving forward. Biggest test of her career. Great matchup. The rest of the main card is, is terrific to me. I referred to Saturday's event as the hangover event because we weren't really that into it after the, the pay-per-view event, and the names weren't necessarily that big, <clears throat> and the fights weren't necessarily as divisionally significant. But this week's card coming up has some big names and has some divisionally significant fights. Clay Guido versus Claudio Pueyes. Tanner Boser against Alexander Romanov, who is undefeated. That's a great fight. Lando Venata and Charles Jordan is going to be terrific. Macy Barber and Montana De La Rosa is an important fight for both women at flyweight. Manel Kopp and Sumer Darji, that is a terrific fight. And the return of the big homie, Tyson Pedro, after three years and change away, the once promising light heavyweight, still just 30 years old, gets the chance to come back. We also get Jordan Wright and Marc-Andre Berrio in a fight where somebody is getting knocked out, the CM Punk member of the trilogy i guess michael michael jackson mike the truth jackson comes back against the debuting dean barry a ricky ling against cameron else just some good fights some entertaining scraps next saturday so definitely check those out I'll be previewing them talking about them diving into them all week on the newsletter diving into them on on thursday on the severe mma preview show maybe diving into them a little bit more on a on a second podcast We'll see how the week plays out. But look, guys, as always, I, I close it out by saying thank you. I appreciate all the kind words this week. I appreciate all the clicks, all the reads, all the likes, all the shares, all the comments, everything. Um, and, and to the limited haters that there are, I don't see you. You don't matter to me. You shouldn't matter to Bilal Muhammad either. Um, have a great week. Happy Easter. Happy holiday, whatever it is, to you and yours. And if you don't celebrate any, I love you anyways. Thank you for always being here. Thank you for always checking this out. As always, hit me up. Let me know what more you need to do, what I can improve, what needs work, things of that nature. Take care of yourselves. Take care of one another. And we'll talk to you next Sunday.